Welcome to the Word on the Hill. My name is Father Peter Mussett. I'm lanky. Uh, my name is Scott Powell. Did you... This is the... Yeah, you said everything. This is with lanky guys. This is the Word on the Hill. Did you start to say it and then make a last-minute decision to end by singing it? Because yeah. your transition from speaking to singing was was very subtle today. Yeah, yeah, dude. I was just deciding, like, what do, what do I do, man? What do I do? How do I do this? Because because the truth is, is I was just thinking about Ralph Wiggum, man. Just like, <laughs> how would Ralph Wiggum do this podcast? Not like that. No, you know what he would do is I think he would do it from his drawer that he lives in. He lives in a drawer? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that. He's like burning. And then like he's like, he's like, look at my bed. And it was in a drawer. <laughs> oh. I'm like... Ralph Wiggum. Dude, I knew a dude who lived in a drawer. But I mean no, it was like a, it was like a cabinet. It was more like a closet cabinet thing. This is the barracks. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a drawer. Nobody you're not fooling anybody, Father Peter. Ah. It is the third Sunday of Lent. Oh, any shout outs for you this week, Father Peter? Um Um Oh my goodness, I'm trying to remember uh uh, last night we had our debate with yeah. uh, Miss Stephanie Gray, mm. and she did wonderfully here. And uh, the family she was staying with the like, Contellinis, the Contellinis, absolutely, they, they listened. So I wanted to oh, shout the them out because they were so happy and excited to listen to the podcast. They're a wonderful family, um, and I want to give a shout out to all the folks who came out to the Saint Therese Institute Lenten Conference up in Bruno, Saskatchewan, where I was this last weekend. Um, all the the students of the Saint Therese Institute. And all the folks um, just around who who came out and were able to say they listened to the podcast. Uh, a special shout out to Father Pius, who's the parish priest out there, who uh, was nice enough to embarrass me in front of the entire congregation because I called him a goat during the conference. No, I talked about didn't. how the priests take on the role of like the Old Testament scapegoat in that they become the bearers of our sin, and that's why you wear black in a certain sense. And wow. So during Mass the next day, he wanted to compliment you know, the retreat, and he's like, well, Scott Powell called me a goat. So I'm gonna call him up here, and it was it was fun. So that's awesome. Thank you for the pies. Thanks to everybody up at uh, Saint Therese, Jimmy Anderson, and the whole crew. Dude, do you know that I'm I'm becoming increasingly more of a fan of Canadians? Oh, the Canadians are the best. Yeah, it was lovely. Dude, yeah, uh, Ver- Veritas Tools is a, is a uh, woodworking tool manufacturer <laughs> out of uh, out of Canada, mm. um, and uh, Jessam as well. They are uh, a great. I mean, like this is the thing is that they're polite. They make great wood things we beat them at hockey in the olympics we did yeah they weren't thrilled about that dude no that's not thrilling (laughs) well it is for us i mean it is for for them but but we're an international crew so shout out to everybody who's listening in japan (laughs) today everybody who's listening in australia and canada and the ukraine (laughs) okay all right third sunday in ordinary time uh lent actually Uh, shoot okay third sunday in lent okay i I still prepared the right readings our first reading Is from Exodus, movement of your people, for um, Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 through 17. All right, our responsorial psalms coming from, oh, that's plan B of the first reading. Okay, our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 19. The heavens Heavens are telling the glory of God. Psalm 19, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, which I think could reasonably just say 8 through 11. But it doesn't. And the response, of course, is coming from John chapter 6. 
just to throw everybody off a little bit. John chapter six, verse sixty-eight. You know, I, I once sang that psalm, that that song to um to both uh, Archbishop Chapu and uh, now Bishop Aquila in a car once with and like, Bishop Nicholas wasn't he and in there Bishop as well? Nicholas? It was it was like basically I had three bishops. I was in a car with three bishops, and I made a total mockery of that self of that song. That's what we call a three bishop mockery. And then. And and like they none of them and I was like a first year seminarian and like they they all thought it was funny but they couldn't laugh because like <laughs> so God help us all so our second reading is first first God Corinthians <laughs> he will yeah first Corinthians uh, chapter one verses twenty two to twenty five very good our gospel is from John chapter two verses thirteen through twenty five okay <laughs> yeah no I'm just I'm just getting I'm I'm getting on to business. We yeah, got, dude. Okay, Exodus. This is the, the Decalogue, man. This the is the Decalogue. Very good. You pulled out Decalogue. Yeah, I like the movie, the deck well, the movies Decalogue. The movies. If you've ever tried to watch them, some of them are better than others, but they are very artistic and very paced. That's all I'm saying. You very know what I'm paced? saying? Yeah, paced. Paced? Yeah, is that a verb? Slow. Or an adjective? Yes. P- oh, P, not P-A-S-T-E, that no. you would eat in elementary school, speaking no, no, of Ralph no. Wiggum. P-A-C-E-D. I gotcha. Yep. All right. Um, it's funny that you called them the Decalogue. It's not funny that you called them the Decalogue. It's appropriate that you called them the Decalogue. So this is uh, where we're given, for the first time, the Ten Commandments, Okay. And here's what I want to say about this. Okay. There's a lot we could say as far as context. So, I mean, we know where we are. We're in Exodus 20. So we've just come, the Israelites have just come out of Egypt. They've they've crossed the Red Sea. They've witnessed all of the Lord's mighty works um, in Egypt and, you know, what we call the plagues, all of these things. And now they've reached Mount Sinai and Moses has gone up on the mountain to basically receive God's instructions for the people that he's going to begin to build up into the nation of Israel, right? Okay. This is how I want you to be. This has often been seen. The Ten Commandments are often seen as, um, if you look, there, there's different ways to look at the whole book of Exodus. But one of, I think, the most important ways to read the whole story of Exodus, and this is a rabbinic way of reading it, was as a love story, right? So you have the first part of the book. Um, the <laughs> that's, a, that's not, I mean, like, when I think of a love story, you know what I'm thinking of? What? I'm thinking of like two weeks notice. I'm thinking of, you know, yes. Romeo and Juliet. Exodus is not necessarily. Two, what is two weeks notice? <laughs> dude, that's like is a. Is that a rom-com? Yeah, it's a totally rom-com. So dude. I like to think of the Ten Exodus. things I hate about you. I think of Exodus exactly like every romantic comedy I've ever seen. Bear with me for a second. <laughs> let me explain what I mean. No, let me tell you what I mean. Okay, I'm okay. listening, dude. What is the basic premise of every rom-com that you've seen okay two people from totally different worlds come into the, the, like miss each other all right that's that's part okay maybe and then they find each other i think of three people so when i think of your typical i'm obviously it varies it's actually there's typical, actually i mean like there's oh always there's always the square of relationality okay because you have the guy with his guy friend and the girl with his girlfriend. That's not what I mean. That's true, but those are sub subcategories. Okay, categories. You have uh, okay. This is and I'm I'm oversimplifying. Okay, Fine. Sim- Fine. simplify it. Do it. You have a guy and a girl. Yeah. And you have another guy. Okay. You have the girl, right? Okay. Then you have the guy that she's supposed to be with, who she's going to end up with at the end of the movie. Yep. And then you got the wrong guy that she's with during the middle of the movie. Right? You know what I'm talking about? I know that. I mean, I see it in our ministry all the time. And so the task of the good guy 
is to show that she shouldn't be with him and rather mm. she should be with the protagonist, right? Mm. And if you think about it, this is the first few chapters of the book of Exodus, right? You have Israel in captivity in Egypt. And what are they doing? They've fallen to worshiping the gods of Egypt. They've wedded themselves. They've covenanted themselves in a certain sense to all of these false gods, to these false spouses that they shouldn't be with. So what do you have? You have the one true God coming in and basically throughout the course of these 10 plagues, these mighty works, putting all of those other gods to shame showing why they are not real gods, why they are worthless, and why he is way better and they should really be with him, right? Right. That's the storyline. Proving to them that, no, I want to woo you. I'm going to win you over. Like um, Leif Erikson in 10 Things I Hate. What's the guy's name? Leif Erikson. What's his name? Long hair? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that guy, you know, yeah. singing on the, on the football field. Like he, God's trying to win them over. He's wooing them. He's trying to make them fall in love with him. And leave the false gods that they've fallen for, right? That's the story of the Exodus. And eventually it works. And they're like, yes, we, we see. We get it. We're going to follow you. Right. And they're led out of Egypt. They're led out of the slavery of these relationships, which is really how the Exodus story is meant to be read. It's not just a political captivity that they happen to be geographically enslaved in this nation. They're in a spiritual captivity to all these false gods, right? And so that's what God needs to break them from. So they go out. They cross the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. And when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, again, the way the rabbis saw this, you have stage one, which is the wooing. Stage two is the Ten Commandments, which is the wedding vows. And now that they've, God has, has made, he's wooed Israel, he's built the relationship, now he wants to wed himself to her, right? And so they go up and they, what? <laughs> Nothing. Do I have something on my face? No, no, no. Um, I was itching my face. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were signaling me. No. It's like a baseball signal. <laughs> no, I was, no, I was itching my face. You and just then, kept doing the same. And then I felt this devil on my cheek. And then I, and then, okay, come right. on. That was weird. Okay. So these are the wedding vows, right? It's, okay. it's, it's the, yeah, which is a beautiful way to think about it. It's painful. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful in one sense. It's beautiful in one sense. It's what's, what do you mean? Talk to me. I mean, the, this is like this is like the night of the wedding where they're going to yeah. be vowed, and then it's then you sad dis- what then the you bride is doing. Then you find the bride is is hanging out. Yeah, sleeping with the caterer is what Scott Hahn always says. Yeah, the wedding analogy, which yeah, you know the golden calf incident, which which we could we could talk about, but we're not going to go into here. So, oh, Helen, I have one insight for you. Though. All right, the casting method by which uh, the uh, calf would have popped out of the the uh, fire <laughs> it just popped out. What what happens is that he probably j- they just probably took the gold, threw it on the sand, and then see what see what form it took. No, absolutely. I think it was absolutely purposeful. You think it just accidentally? I don't know. Came I'd, out in the form I'd, of, of Apis. I mean, it could. It could have. It's uh, they, hmm. I think that's worth studying a little bit more. What Apis was specifically known for? I'm I'm just curious. You've made me curious whether there's something specific about Apis that would have applied to their situation in the wilderness that would have made him an appropriate god to have built. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, that's an that's a, that's a question for that's another an podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So here's what I want to say about this. So that's one one way of framing this, right? Okay. That's where we are. Yep. By the way, um, speaking of the rabbinic way of reading the Exodus, the third part of the book of Exodus is a lot of chapters all about the furnishings of the tabernacle. Do you remember that? And so this huge chunk of the book of Exodus, after you get the action of the ten plagues and you know the, the wandering in the wilderness and the ten commandments and all that stuff, 
you have this huge chunk of just, this is what the tabernacle should look like, and this is how big the walls should be, and this is where the chair should go, and it should be made out of this material. Remember that whole thing? Yeah. And the, ra- well, I, I don't know how, I'm paraphrasing how the rabbis said it, but the the other the third stage to this um, relationship imagery is that that's the stage of Israel and God building their home together, hmm. and you know you think of a newlywed couple buying their first house and all of the effort you put into like, I want that paint color and we're gonna put you this chair over here and what about my grandma's hutch and you know that kind of thing which is actually kind of a beautiful way of reading what is oftentimes seen as a really boring part of the book yeah. to see it in terms of this relationship and this marital imagery of God with his people is actually kind of beautiful. So that's a, a way of framing the whole book. Wow. But here, that's cool. But for now, what I want to say is this. The Ten Commandments is how we often think about this, but you call it the Decalogue, which is the appropriate term for it. Um, and Decalogue is derivative of two Greek words. Deca, which is ten. Deca, which means ten. What's the Lo- log, which is... You um, know this one, but you 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 you're not putting the pieces together. I'm not log- trying to trick logo. you. Logo, logos, logos, logos. To ten reasons. No, logos, logos. Words. Word, right? This is properly speaking the ten words, which is actually how the rabbis always refer to it. So we think of it the Ten Commandments, which is true. Interesting. It is the commandments, but they don't think of them in. Ter- they don't name these. The rabbis didn't name these in terms of strictly the commandments. They call them God's words, God's 10 words, which I think makes a difference because if you start reading it, what's the first commandment? It says, I, the Lord, I am the Lord, your, I, the Lord, your God, I, I'm sorry, I, I the am. Lord am your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, the place of slavery, and you shall not have other gods before me. That first command, so to speak, is actually, I think you could read it as one of the first tellings of the gospel. Because this first word has less to do with what they're supposed to do in the future and more to do with looking back on what God has done. Which oh. is why it's hard to think of them in strict terms of this is command. These are the, the rules you have to follow. Now, that's not the right way to look at this. It's framed by God saying, this is who I am. This is what I have done for you. And this is what I will continue to do. And here's what your response should be to this. It's God's word. And I think that, to me, that's the one thing that's kind of reverberating for when we get to the gospel. Because if we read these as just strict commandments, strict rules, then we're going to be a little bit thrown off when we try to tie this together with the gospel. What we, when we think of these as God's words, literally the telling of his gospel, the good news. What's the good news? The good news, the euangelion, is that I've set you free from the land of Egypt and your mm. slavery for a relationship with me. Okay, this is a telling of the gospel. That's what these logos are, the Decalogos. Yeah. So that's the way I want to sort of introduce this and kind of frame that. No, that's really actually, I mean, to say like in, in a certain sense, yeah, here is this actual romance, the wedding, the covenantal expression with God's people. And these are the words at the center, the vows, the yeah, the vows, the, the 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 like. This is who I am, and this is um, this is a response. This is a proper response to who I am. Yes, and of course, their response is <laughs> not so good. Oh, I forgot what I wanted to. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll hold off on that. I want to say one more thing about the context of this, but I maybe I'll, I'll let me just introduce it, and I won't I won't conclude my thought on it. Okay. Do you remember what the context for God giving these words is? Like the immediate context. 
Uh, what does it look like? How am I trying to stormy ask this? and lightning and yeah, it's it's pretty chaotic. Yeah, right? yeah, it's, it's Moses pretty goes frightening. Yes, just put that aside. Let's hang on to that. Okay, God's word sometimes comes to us in forms of some pretty freaky stuff. Right, hold on to that. You know, it's like I love the ten words of the Lord, but I have to say that for for um, examinations of conscience. I find it very hard to use the ten the the Decalogue to to do an examination of conscience. Yeah, I find it much easier to use the seven deadly sins. But I'm just saying, oh, interesting. Just for those of you who, and it's kind of cool that we're given God is good enough to give us multiple options to examine our consciences. Right, exactly. Because I, I just you know I, you always have to you have to dig pretty deep as a response mm. to God. Like like yeah. I I think that though I think it might help me to do an examination to think. This is um this is who I am. How are you responding to me? Because Ooh, yeah. Because like the end of the day, um when I make an examination at the end is to say, Lord, where were you during this day mm. and how did I respond? Mm. So That's to cool. actually take a moment long enough to say, where were you present to actually think about that and then to say, okay, what was my response to that? In a certain sense, it follows this pattern of what was the word, what was the Lord's word to me in this day, and then how did I respond? And then, yeah, that's and that's, good. And that's a little bit what, what's happening with Egypt, which it gets us into the response. Well, it's, it's a perfect segue into the response. Right. And here's the, what's what's kind of cool. And I didn't, I saw this after I started thinking about the whole Decalogue and the etymology of that word. But isn't it interesting that the church, in her wisdom, then inserts the responsorial actually from John where it says, not, Lord, you have the commandments of everlasting life. Lord, you have the rules of everlasting life. Lord, you have the words, it says, of everlasting life, which I think is is the church's effort to relate this immediately back to the first reading. Mm. These are God's words. This is really the first time that God speaks his word in this way. He has subtly, you know, he's done this with individuals. He spoke to Abraham. He's revealed himself in some ways. But the Ten Commandments, the, the Decalogue, this is the first time that he has sort of manifest his word to the world in this kind of way. Mm. And so isn't it appropriate that the church then turns us back and says, you have the words of everlasting life. That's what this is. That's what you reveal. And then it goes on in the psalm itself, the law of the Lord, which I, I think you could appropriately read that, the word of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul and the decree of the Lord is trustworthy. It gives wisdom to the simple that the Lord's word is powerful, essentially. And it has all these different ways in which it can manifest itself. That's why your your comment about the examine is is really important because the different ways that God's word should and ought to manifest itself in our lives is worth recollecting and going back and be like, did it? Did it not? Did it take root here? I think of the sower, right, from the gospel and the sower sowing his seeds, which is God's word. Did it take? Did it fall on rocky ground? Did the sin in my life swallow it up like the thorns and the thistles? Like how did... What happened in my in my heart when God's word came to me? Mm. Right? Absolutely. Which gets us uh, into the second reading, actually, from Corinthians. It does. Because w- what are the thorns and thistles that are, that are the immediate blocks for the Jews and the Greeks? It's signs and wisdom. So it's like saying, like, like you know we're talking to the Corinthians and the Corinthians their their particular issue is that they have um wandering philosophical lecturers who they acclim- they they take to themselves and kind of adopt as schools 
So like, so it's, it's really easy for the Corinthians to go through and to say, um, you know, like to, to kind of acclimate to the fanciest, most recent lecturer and take on new philosophical frameworks rather than being able to just to, to actually seek truth. They, they enjoy rhetoric. They enjoy the, the process of logic and in this kind of Corinthianizing. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. That's, 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 oh. A, that's another thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. So, so like St. Paul is saying, Hey, I'm going to just be really intense here. Let's go to the root of what's happening. I'm not going to do this in a fancy way. Jesus Christ is crucified. And, and we have to deal with the fact that God gave himself for us. Yes. Yes. You were I, making a lot of faces. I couldn't tell. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking of the nuance of what you just said, which is all correct. But I, I, I'm thinking about <laughs> the poor Corinthians. Everything you said is right. They, they're latching on to these philosophical thought there. But the thing with the Corinthians, I think, is unique historically is that Basically, it's this culture of people who want to be really philosophically articulate, and they're really not. Right. They're, 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 they think they are, and they have this image of themselves that we are the modern-day Plato's and Socrates, but they're not. They're just not that good at their philosophy. Yeah, it, it's it's like when you hang out with your pseudo intellectual friends. Oh yeah, who that's the Corinthians, you, you know, where where, where they're who like love to hear themselves talk, right? And they're expounding upon all of these things and these oh. theories, but it's and just like, cloudy and not clear and and painful to engage in. You're just like, no, let's actually talk about something that is that matters to you in your soul in a heart way, not some sort of intellectual juggling so that you look fancy. Well, and here's what Paul, here's why that's important for Paul. Okay, so they want to be the people. They're the people that love to hear themselves talk. They're the people that want so desperately to convince everybody else how intelligent and wise they are. Right. And what Paul is saying is that, wait a second. So he is actually laying out this, he's using law court terminology in this part of 1 Corinthians to basically make a case as to why, and it's, not ironically, but uh, uh, yeah, conveniently enough, he's talking about the word of the cross or the message of the cross. But he Mm. uses that word again, logos. The word of the cross is foolishness, he says. To the world. Wow. And he's like, you're this group of people that you were so desperate to make everyone think that you're wise. Well, guess what? The message of the gospel, literally the word of the gospel, looks like foolishness to the eyes of the world. So if you're in it to try to impress all your neighbors and get everyone to think that you were really sharp and smart and articulate, then the gospel message is probably not the right way for you to do it. Because if you think about it, it's not a pleasing message to anyone. The Jews, what does it say? The Jews wanted signs. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the modern day Moses to part the Red Sea and to inflict all these plagues on the Romans. Jesus does none of that. He allows himself to, at least on the face of it, look defeated, to be crucified, to be beaten, spit upon. None of the Old Testament kings would have allowed that to themselves. So that's not a pleasing message to our Jewish friends. And the Greeks, they want wisdom. They want articulation. They want somebody who can get up and give a brilliant speech. And Jesus, you know, he's on trial before Pilate and, and the, the, you know, the, the Roman governors and the high priests. And he says nothing. You know, he quotes Isaiah. He opened not his mouth. Right. You're not articulate. You're no Plato. Wait, you're the savior. You don't have anything to say. So it's like, if you think about it, the word that you actually follow looks like idiocy to the people that you are so desperate to impress. (laughs) But if you have the eyes to see it, it's far more wise 
than any of that stuff. Right. But you're looking at it in the wrong way because you're just trying to impress people. And the word of the cross is not impressive for people who are looking for worldly goods. Mm. It's far different than that. But again, it's playing on that idea of the word of God Mm. is not necessarily what you expect it. And that's where that examine comes in. How is that word actually affecting your life? Because if you're just trying to, I mean, we have this reality in our society, right? The health and wealth gospel. And I, I, you know, there's plenty of people in our world that preach, well, if you follow Jesus Christ, then you'll be successful and you'll be wealthy and you'll be happy and all these things. And really, we know that the message of the cross is that he promises us the cross. Right. That's what we're promised. Yep. Which is not necessarily a big, attractive message to tell the world. Hey, follow Jesus and you're going to suffer. Yay, sign me up. You're like, no, wait. No. Until you're in that moment of suffering and you're like, whoa, where do I go? Where do I turn to actually find meaning in this? Mm. Is suffering have the last word? Because we're all going to end up there at some point. Yeah. At some point, the suffering is going to catch up. And we have a framework to put that in. We say, no, the word of the Lord actually can work through that to save the world. But, again, he's telling the Corinthians, if you're just trying to please people, this isn't the way to do it. Nope. Speaking of not pleasing people. Here comes Jesus. <laughs> uh, dude, uh, cleansing in the temple, man. This is uh, John. And, like, uh, there's, I always, I think I feel, I feel like I've, I've said this on the podcast every time we've talked about this. Is I just kind of like seeing Jesus just rage, but you know, yeah, it's like you're just like, like, dude, just getting, getting like the full kind of like, I've got to go for this. I mean, but what we understand is it's like he in the t- he found the temple area, those who sold oxen, sheep, doves, his money changers there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with what? the sheep. Now he could have done it in a melly, mellow, very kind of like normal hey guys, way, you know, stop just stop doing this. Yeah, well, he could have just hit some hit some animals and stuff, but like, <laughs> and he spilled the coins of the money changers. Hey, he'd made whip out of cords for the money changers, not the animals. It's not their fault. No, then <laughs> drove them out of the temple area. He said the money changers. Oh, yeah, I guess yeah. He he did. The, he, he he's he, more mad at them than he is the animals. <laughs> the yeah, animals are cool. But what's cool no, is it, is this is actually really important to start to understand this contextually is that Jesus is making a sign. So we just talked about how the, the, the Jews are seeking signs. Yeah. He's, Here's one. He's shutting down temple commerce. Yes. Pointing to a time that the temple will be shut down permanently. Absolutely. To and make it's, way for a greater one. It's only a temple. I mean, like because the, the, the coin changers are going to pick up their coins. Yeah, they'll get things going again. He causes chaos for a little while. One thing I have. Oh, I see where you're going, yeah, Mister Chaos Pants. Before we get there, I just want to say a word on on a practicality level. Okay. okay. This is showing up. Where are we? We're in John chapter two, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yep. Um, the cleansing of the temple, the overturning of the money changers' tables, happens right before the Passion. Right. John puts it here at the very, very beginning. And so there's debate. Is John just rearranging it to try to make a point? You know, is he trying to stress something at this point? I actually think Jesus did it twice. I think Jesus did it at the beginning of his ministry, and I think he did it again right before the Passion. And part of why I think that, so John puts it here at the very beginning, near Passover. Um, One of the things that people say, so he does all this, and people's response is, what sign are you going to show us? By the time we get to the passion, he's done a lot of science and right. he's performed a lot of things. I actually get the impression, and I'm in good company, that some people think this is actually one of the first things he does in his ministry. So that, 
a little while later when he comes back to Jerusalem and does this again, guess what? The powers that be are ready for him. They're like, we know this guy. You've done this before. We're not caught off guard this time. Now we're going to rally the troops. We have councils ready for you this time. You know what I mean? Mm. So his ministry is in a certain sense framed with this act. In a certain sense, it's a little more, you know, complex, but he, he, he does this at the beginning and the end. Again, what is he trying to show? It's exactly what you said. This temple is obsolete. Well, and John, John, in his kind of dichiastic structure of 13 to 25, the center idea is destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Yeah, because they ask him what sign and that's his response. Yeah. And what sign can you give me? And he's like, he's like, I will show you, I'll show you the true sign. Which is really, really cool because... Don't you love John who puts the pieces together? He's like, here's what... He was talking about his body. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, John's really handy in that way. Yeah, it's like he's not going to leave it. Which is interesting because if you kind of connect what we're talking about, this rom-com exodus expression... (laughs) That phrase is phenomenal. (laughs) The rom-com exodus expression. (laughs) Dude, that sounds oh. like that sounds like um, some sort of 1960s book or a really lame doctoral dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely oh. it. So, so you take you take this whole idea of a romance of of, yeah. a, of a people getting wooed and then vowing and then building a house. Well, yeah. what we're, what are we seeing? Oh, ooh, ooh. I see where you're going. Yeah. Well, no, I don't, but I see what you're setting up. I see what you're building. Yeah. What happens is that is that this particular, the the way in which the the people of Israel and God are relating to each other, it is unsustainable. It cannot. It cannot continue. So there's the problems in the marriage. There's problems in the marriage. They got to see somebody. They've got to see somebody. His well, name is Jesus. Well, this is the thing is that in Jesus, what happens? What's the only thing that ends a marriage? Um, Death. Death. (laughs) Till death rattles apart. A list in my head. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. death. I mean, in in what's meant to be. This is how Paul unpacks what Jesus does in the new covenant and how it's possible to have a new covenant to begin with. Right. Because preaching Christ crucified. But here's the thing here's what I love about this, right? Who was the marriage? So going back to Exodus, who is the marriage covenant between God and Israel? God and His people, right? Right. God and humans. Um, like you said, the only way to absolve a marriage, absolve to uh, what's the word I'm looking for? To not uh, destroy. That's not uh, no, to no, end to, a marriage. I guess yeah. is for death, right? Right. So if there's a new covenant, that means somebody has died. So in the covenant between God and humanity, who died? Both. Ah, God became human and, and died, he, and he dies, and so that so that it what happens is it can be raised up again, and a new house can be established. A new house can be built. Right. A new house must be built. A new house must which be which he's pointing to here, and the word of that message, the word that says, I mean, it, it's like it's not the antithesis, but I mean, there's certainly echoes of. Mount Sinai, where in chaos and some some violence in a real way, lightning, fire coming down, God speaks his word. And now at the other end of the story... In, in the midst of chaos of yes. persecution and trial and people and But even Jesus himself, lightning. 
he brings a little violence. He flipping tables and right. whips. It is a fire come down from heaven and in a very real way, embodied Ooh. in him. Ooh. And he gives a new word, and it's a challenging word. Yes. And it's a new gospel message that is, yes, God set you free, and God is actually going to have to change your hearts in a pretty profound way. But that word comes again. And again, we go back to the psalm, right? Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. This is a hard word, Mm. but it will bring everlasting life. That's the nature of it. But it comes in the midst of this, of this relationship that's, that's damaged and needs to be reconciled. Maybe this makes sense of this last line. And he says, but Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all and did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. Talk to me. Um, yeah, the, I, I was thrown off by that line, to be honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little, I'm still a little thrown off, and I'm trying to understand it because it, we're going to say the gospel of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to <laughs> Thank God. God be praised. You're like, okay. You could almost say though, you could almost end this all with a yet, right? He did yes. not trust him. He did not trust himself to them yet, because he will give himself totally to the religious leaders and the powers that be in Jerusalem to be handed over to them, also still knowing their hearts, knowing their human nature, knowing the the disaster that's going to come from that. Yes. But you can almost put it yet, because we're at the beginning of the ministerial story here. Right. He is going to entrust himself in a certain sense later. Right. So maybe John is setting you up a little bit for that. And that's that's what I'm seeing, is I'm saying that, that he does not yet, tr- but he would not trust himself to them because... Yet, um, I mean, when I look at dating, I say dating is about chemistry. You're like, hey, do we get along? Is there is there some sparks? Is there flavor here? And you know, and then you say yes, and then then you get engaged, and then you begin to learn how to trust. And 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 then once once you're in this engagement period, you're saying, is this person trustworthy? Yeah. Like. Because the person you married at the beginning ain't gonna be the same person that you married at the end. This is Everything's true. gonna people are just they we just transform. So you say, do I trust this person that in the mode in which they're gonna be transformed is gonna be okay? Yeah. And so Jesus is saying he doesn't not he doesn't trust himself to them until he until the vows are said, and then it's a Ooh. full entrustment. And now he really entrusts himself entirely. Not Be- because they've so we have somehow magically become perfect. No. But but he like, is now I've sworn myself. Well, because he's introduced humanity into the divine Godhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so that he's entrusted himself fully then. And so I don't know. I mean I'm just flirting with it. There's some mystery there that I don't quite get yet, but there's some intonations here because well, strangely enough, that's kind of appropriate for Lent. Because we're right. still leading to something. There's still some mysteriousness here. I'm like, what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you getting at? What are you getting at? And, and, and on a certain level, we know what he's going to do. We know Good Friday is coming. We know the passion is coming. We know the resurrection is coming. But as we um, call that to mind, this Lent, and as we kind of live through that again, he's still going to do something new. There's still some mystery. Right. Because those events are ever new. They're, they become present to us in the liturgy. And that word, again, brings everlasting life, and it's going to do it in new ways in every generation. And we, his beloved, his spouse, are going to be introduced and brought in in a new way again this year Yeah, in ways that don't make sense. I'm just trying to justify your confusion <laughs> and, my, and my confusion with you. Yeah, dude. And well, put it hey, poetically. Justify my confusion. <laughs> Poetic confusion. Hey, um, 
I feel like th- th- in a certain sense, like Lenten wise, mm. it might be right to just actually let it, we should let leave it, it there. Be, let it be because let it be because Lent is a really looking forward to. It's an anticipation of. So that's it. Um, so we're going to anticipate together what is coming in this beautiful Paschal mystery, and we're going to mysteriously pass it by. No, mm. that was bad. Mm. I was trying to make something. That's funny. okay. It was funny. Okay, it was kind of fun. Thanks for listening, you guys. We love you. We'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Bye. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.